Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine. But anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA plus rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts on our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is drag performer and recording artist Trinity the Tuck, one of the most loved and recognisable drag artists there is. Today we see her as a confident, beautiful, multi-title winning drag race girl with millions of fans, but that's not always been the case. Trinity grew up in Alabama, a place where her sexuality and identity made it hard for her to blend in. Her upbringing was tough and full of tragedy. But her journey into the world of pageants and dance and her quest to let her true self shine has led her to where she is today. She identifies as non-binary and decided to tell the world her story on Transgender Day of Visibility. So now let's say hello to Trinity the Tuck and welcome to A Gay Old Time. Hi. How are you? It is such a pleasure to speak to you and to have you here on the podcast today. You are always such an inspiration to so many people. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here talking with you today. It's a nice, sunny winter morning and, um, well, I guess noon, afternoon now in Orlando, Um you could literally wear shorts outside, which is awful. <laughs> but it's great because you have the legs for it. Um, let's talk. Let's go back to the beginning. I mean, there's so many things that I want to speak to you about, but I want to go right back to the beginning when little Ryan was there growing up. Um, what were your earliest memories of otherness, of knowing that maybe little Ryan was different to the society's expectations? I think that I remember maybe five or so uh, when my grandparents were trying to put me into like little league sports, like T-ball, which is like baseball for little kids and other, uh, other sports. I, I just didn't, I didn't connect with that. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. And I always complained to, to do sports. Not that sports is like necessarily a straight thing, but I was more drawn to, effeminate stuff playing with dolls I even though I I loved playing outdoors I I was such an outdoors kid but I did like playing with dolls and I I think one thing that I remember around that same age was I loved getting in my grandmother's silk nightgowns I just loved the way that it felt the the fabric I you know I never saw any other little boy in a silk nightgown so (laughs) Did you have any feeling of sort of sexuality at that point? Or was it very much like, you know, you say you like the feel of the nightgown and you didn't want to play sports. You just thought maybe you were different, but that's how you were. Yeah, I, I, there was definitely nothing sexual, nothing gendered about it. It wasn't um, I'm I'm going to be a girl or I'm going to be a boy or, or whatever. It just was like, oh, this feels nice. This is pretty. I like this. You know, I think kids are so innocent. They don't know anything to do with gender and sexuality and, and so on and so forth. That is all taught. Like, as a kid, you everything's innocent. You don't, re- you know, you don't connect things like that. Um, so for me, it was just about the way the fabric felt and it was soft and it was pretty. What was little Ryan like at school? I mean, was he a good pupil or was school like an escape from being at home? It's like, did you enjoy going to school? I would say that. My my grandmother would have described me when she was around. She would have described me as a very good kid. I had a learning disability when I was very young. I couldn't, I don't know if it was ADHD or, or whatnot, but I just, I could not learn the same way other students did. And uh, some of that had to do with bullying and me not being comfortable in in school. But yeah, I think overall I was a good kid. I don't think that, learning was like, I, I just didn't learn the way other kids learned for sure. I was very 
kept to myself because, again, I was effeminate. I wasn't into sports. So the cool kids, like the, the jocks and stuff, they, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I, I just kept to myself. How did you react with the bullying? In a, I grew up in a really country town. So I think what I did for the most part is I just tried to avoid people to, to, to not have to deal with it. Uh, I think my earlier adolescence and then early high school, I just dealt with it. Sophomore and junior year, I think I definitely talked back more. I, I, I lashed out against them more. I, I think for the most part, I avoided people because I, I was also very small build, small stature. I wasn't trying to get into some sort of like physical altercation. I never got into a physical altercation, luckily. In a small town, you just try to avoid people like that. Because when we see Trinity the Turk today, I mean, known worldwide, such a confident, beautiful individual. Um, looking back at like little Ryan growing up in Alabama, was there any confidence there or inner confidence or were, as you said just now, like very, you know, very shy and afraid to sort of almost face the world around you? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a completely different person now than I was when I was living in Alabama in, in especially in my childhood. I think growing up, you, you know, it's, it's where I grew up. If if you're quote unquote a boy and you're not doing masculine things, something's wrong with you. And so, because I didn't have any guidance or or pushed in any direction of creativity, I just kind of felt lost. I didn't know what I was good at. I didn't feel like I had any hobbies that like reflected who I was, I kind of just was like floating. I think even like early high school, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life because I just, I, I didn't have opportunity to figure that out. And it wasn't till turned 18 and moved out of my grandparents' house and onto my own that I started to experiment with my interests and, and, explore the world and see what was out there that really started making me realize who I am. And, you know, that that's just been a journey. I think confidence definitely has come with age and experience. Did little Ryan have aspirations? I mean, when he was at school, were there childhood heroes, a favorite teacher, people that he aspired to be like? I, I think the one teacher that I looked up to, I, I did in high school, took art class one year. And I remember that teacher, her name was Miss Dollar. And um, she was a very obscure woman, very weird, uh, funky clothing, uh, hipster, not a type of person you would see in this town. And um, I remember her taking a liking to me because I was very creative with, with drawing and, and sketching and painting. And she was the only person, I think, that was that encouraging to explore a creative side. Other than that, I just, there was just nothing. There was, it, it was a, a small cowfield town. Like we, like a, like there was not even a red light. So there wasn't anywhere to go hang out. There was no, this is before you know, social media, the internet had just become a thing. Um, so you, you didn't, you know, this, I, I started what it meant to be gay when I was like 14 and 15 through AOL chat. Cause that's when it first came out. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was all very kind of a blur because I, I didn't have a great childhood as far as like, being able to be who I was. Now, I did feel loved. I did feel loved by my grandparents. Um, I just don't think they got me. You know what I mean? I don't think they understood, you know, a feminine kid because it wasn't, you know, what they're used to. Did they try to, you know, get you to be, in inverted commas, more boy-like? Early on, they tried to enroll me in sports and stuff like that. And I remember one year, my grandmother was trying to force me to get to be to sign up for basketball and I refused. I told her, I was like, if you make me play this, I'm going to go out in the middle of the court and I'm going to sit down in the court. I'm not playing basketball. After that, I don't think they tried to get me to do sports after that. The, I think 
the reason why wasn't necessarily maybe maybe it was I don't I don't know what their intention was behind that. I do know that my sister was like the all American girl. She played basketball, volleyball, track, cheerleading, had great grades. Um, you know, she's very popular. So she was like everything that I think my my grandparents that raised us would have wanted for me as well. I just didn't take to the, the you know, the, the typical all-American boy sports. I just, that just wasn't for me. Can I ask you about your upbringing? Because obviously you've mentioned uh, various times that you grew up, um, you were raised by your grandparents. And that's sadly because your mum uh, passed away when you were at an early age, didn't she? I never, I was never close to my, my birth mother. I came directly home from the hospital with my grandmother. And I, I was a month premature. I only weighed three pounds, three ounces. And I was so tiny, no clothes, no bit, the smallest baby clothes and the smallest baby diaper would not fit me. They had to cut the smallest one in half and they had to go to the gift shop and get a little cabbage patch doll and take its clothes off and have me wear that because it was so small. I, I couldn't wear anything else. So I came home from the hospital with them and I just, I, they raised me as their own. I, I eventually started calling my grandmother and grandfather, mom and dad, but I, I did have a couple of interactions with my birth mother here and there, uh, through my childhood. She just wasn't prevalent. And then not till I, I think I was like around seven or eight. Um, she was diagnosed with HIV AIDS and, Towards the end of her life, she moved in with us uh, because she was bedridden and my grandmother had to take care of her. And so that I, I remember a little bit of that. But I think for me, traumas in my childhood, for some reason, I blocked out like there's a there, I, I get I remember fractions of my childhood. I don't have a lot of very clear memories especially around trauma. That's a lot for a, you know, seven-year-old and eight-year-old to take on board that situation. Were you aware of, you know, the gravity of like HIV, AIDS? I mean, that period in the 80s was very, you know, AIDS was sadly everywhere. Um, were you aware of the, sort of the bigger picture of AIDS or was it very much just, no, my mum is sadly ill? Yeah, no, my grandparents did a great job of shielding me from all of that. Like they, they said she was sick. They, they, they obviously like I was able to be around her. Like they didn't like, oh, you can't be near your mother. No, like I was able to be around her, hug her, kiss her, all of that. But they didn't explain too much of what was wrong with her. I do remember the night my birth mother died, my grandmother sent me to my cousins. I didn't know why, because I had school the next day. I was like, this is in the middle of the week. That's so weird, but I'm going to do it because like, I loved my cousin. And we, Her and I were really good friends growing up. I went there and then the, the next day, I my aunt was like, you don't, we're not, you're not going to school today. You're going to stay here. And so I just played all day with my cousin. They didn't go to school. I didn't go to school. I was like, oh, this is a great day. My my birth mother died that night, and what's so bizarre is my grandmother. She had an intuition about it, and like that's not the first time she's had some uh, several throughout her life, like some intuition moments where she has visions or something where that stuff comes true. So she just somehow knew that was the last day that that my mother was going to be alive, and she sent me so I didn't have to witness it. Do you feel that particular gift, that that gift of premonition has been passed down to you at all? I don't feel things like that. My sister has more of that than I do. I I feel like I have a very good judgment of people. I like I can I can definitely within moments of talking to someone, I can feel their aura or 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 their soul and know if this is a t- person that I would want to be around. Further, no, I, I didn't. I don't have anything like that. But my sister has had stuff like that. Like, for example, one thing that my grandmother told me years ago, the night her her actual grandmother died, she had a dream that her grandmother's casket came through her window, and then she woke up, and then that that morning she found out her grandmother had died. 
Oh, you're giving me goosebumps now with that. That's uh, that's pretty spooky right there. Um, talking of intuition, let's move on a couple of years or a few years to dating. Your first experiences of dating. I mean, was it was it with girls? Was it with boys? I mean, were you was your intuition always right after your first date? So in like middle school, I and and uh, yeah, like middle school, like seven, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere around there, I had a girlfriend who was my cousin's best friend. I knew I was gay. I knew one. Well, I, I knew I I wasn't something like that. But like you know, in a small town you're trying to like shield yourself any way you can. And back then I wasn't, you know, I was young. I wasn't sexual at all. So it was like, you know, it's pretty innocent. I, you know, the label, I had a girlfriend. She was my friend that I said was my girlfriend. And we hung out and like went to movies and all that kind of stuff. Tried to kiss me one time. And then I broke up with her. I would say like, my first sexual experience was like when I was 15. I, it was really young. Like, I, I don't know. It was just very strange. So dating, I don't think I really did, like, really date until my early 20s. Like, 20, 21 was my first real boyfriend. Uh, besides that, it was like, you know, a bunch of just, like, trying to figure out my sexuality and identity. But yeah, dating was was very weird for me for a while because, you know, you in a country town, where do you learn from? No, you don't. You have to just figure it out. That's one thing that back then AOL chat, they had chat rooms. You could go in and talk with people, you know, at random. It was just a screen name. There was no profile. There was nothing like that. So you could like make up whatever person you are and go and ask questions. And that's how I found out a lot of stuff to do with what it meant to be gay and and all of that. So uh, dating-wise, I'm assuming obviously you were dating girls. The first sexual experience was with a girl. But in obviously in the chat rooms, you were looking for guys. Nothing sexual other than a kiss with a girl. Never, Nothing. I would never, never, never know. No, 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 no. I, that would not have went with me. But, but like figuring out with guys, yes, questions asked on in chat rooms, trying to figure that out. And but first sexual anything was with a guy at like 15. We, we talk a lot in the queer community about finding our tribe, don't we? Um, was there anybody around you at that point when you actually thought, you know, yeah, they could be like me. They could be part of my tribe. Well, my cousin, after I had came out when I was 16, she immediately came out as lesbian right after me. And so we were very close through our youth to about 17, 18, we, we were very close. So she was the only person that I really hung out with. I didn't really have too many friends in high school. Uh, it wasn't until I moved out and found drag that I started to really find my quote unquote tribe, you know, cause I, di I didn't know. I, di I, I had no experience in the gay world. I didn't, hadn't been to clubs much. And in, as soon as I started going out, that's where I found drag. And with you coming out, I mean, you were, what, what age were you then? Sixteen when you came out? Yes, I was forced out by my one of my other cousins. So I was on the phone with my girl cousin, and this was a landline. So landline phones, if you have, you know, for viewers or listeners out there that are younger, when you have a landline phone and you have more than one in the house, they're connected. And so I was talking to my girl cousin on a landline phone and in another part of the house, our boy cousin was on listening and he, he like listened to our whole conversation. It was me talking to her about this boy I had a crush on and he went and told everybody in my family, um, except for my grandmother and my grandfather. And I had to come out to my grandmother because my aunt was like, if you don't tell her, I'm going to have to tell her because everybody else knows and I'd rather it come from you. Was she supportive of your, you know, coming out or was there a clash at that point? When I came out to my grandmother, it was weird. Like we, we sat down. I like told her there was something important I needed to tell her. We were alone. I was crying profusely. She was trying to like calm me down remember telling her that I was gay, her telling me she loved me 
But that was it. There was no like, oh, I support you. And then shortly after that, she like totally changed towards me because I was very close. I was a I was a, a mama's boy. Like I was a grandmother's boy. Like I, I loved my grandmother um, and we were super close. And then when I came out, that dynamic changed because she was a very religious woman and she loved me. I knew she still loved me, but we, th- there was just this, there was this cloud. Um, and then throughout the, the, the next year or so, she had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I had to end up quitting high school and homeschooling myself and taking care of her because she had been put on hospice. So for the next two years, I took care of her at home myself because my grandfather had to work because we were poor. And uh, in order for her to keep her insurance so she could take her treatments, we he had to work. So the only person that could take care of her was me because we couldn't afford a person to help. So... That grew tensions between me and my grandmother a lot because one, I was young. I was a teenager. I didn't, I was trying, I wanted to go do teenager stuff, but didn't get a chance to. And two, she always had this pushback because she knew I was gay. And that always was brought, like if I was going to go do something anything, go to the store, go, go, anything. She would, she would have so many questions and it wouldn't be innocent questions. It would be like, where are you going? Why are you going there? Who are you meeting? And uh, interrogating me because uh, in fear that I was going to do gay stuff. It got to a point where eventually we got into like a major argument. And I told her, you know, I, I said things to her that I regret for sure. Like I, I still have regret for, um, telling her, like, I hate her, um, all these like things that nasty things that I did not mean. I was just lashing out because she was making me so infuriated with always interrogating me. Eventually she passed. I never got full closure with all of that. Like we had a conversation because eventually I told her, I was like, if you don't start treating me normal you're gonna lose you're gonna lose me like because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be around I'm gonna leave and we had a conversation and and she she never said that I support you but she she reassured me again that she loved me so I never got full closure with that and you know there there was a lot to that and you know I don't fully blame her you know a woman that's super religious that was from a small town too. So she was not very well educated on queer people. I mean, this was the nineties, early two thousands, somewhere on there. So it just wasn't something she was familiar with. So, and I, you know, and who was I to educate her when I was still exploring that myself? Do you have religious views at all? I mean, do you believe maybe that your your grandmother's looking down and has seen your beautiful journey since, or is religion something that, you know, just wasn't for you? My journey with religion has definitely been a journey. It's it's been it's been a very uh windy path. Uh a lot to do with me being resentful to what I was taught in in church because I, we did go to church because I was gay. Um, also resentful to God for having these people that I loved in my life die because I, I I had dealt with death many times and with people that I was close to at a young age. My my great grandparents. I was fortunate enough to know my great grandparents both and and be close to them. Both of those passed. My my mother passing, my grandmother passing, my grandfather passing. Uh, so a, a lot of a lot of death. And my my sister that I grew up with almost dying. It's just been a lot. So I had a lot of resentment towards the God that Christians call God. On top of that, having my qualms with some Christians, would, how they are now, especially now, because it's you know I feel like a lot of Christians weaponize religion. So now I'm not religious at all. I, I, I don't, I, I don't really, I don't want to say that I'm atheist. 
I don't want to say that I'm agnostic. I don't know where I fall. In my experience, I can't speak for everybody. I know this is not true for everybody. But in my experience, the Christians that I have encountered are very hypocritical, are very judgmental, and are not doing what they preach. They are not living up to the standards of what they preach. They preach one thing and live a different way. I do not think that that is a religion that I would want to be part of. I, I So I, as of right now, I don't, I'm not religious. Am I spiritual? Yes. I do. I, I heavily believe in energy transfer. I heavily believe what you put out, you get back into the universe, whatever that might be. I don't know if that's religion or, or what that is. But if you're a good person, good things are going to happen. If you're a bad person, bad things are going to happen and so on and so forth. I, I have a very high more moral compass. Um, I think more than religion having morals and 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 following a, a a moral compass is much more important doing the right thing is much more important to me than than believing in a in whatever god you believe to me because there's lots of people who say they believe in a god or whatever their religion is and are awful people so i think that being a good person is much more important I couldn't agree more. Spirituality is your religion and that's what counts. Do you feel because your grandmother was very religious that when you came out to her, you carried a sense of shame because you felt maybe inwardly that you were disappointing her? Absolutely. I I was just I felt like I was disappointing her, my family, myself, God. I I I remember screaming, crying into my pillow at night asking God, why, why, why am I, why am I gay? Why did you make me gay? Why, why can't you change me? Why can't I, when I, why can't I change? And when there was no answers, like, what do you do? You feel shamed because you feel like you've been abandoned by God, but you know, the teachings that you're taught in Bible school and all of that stuff, you, you know, you hear all this stuff of like, Pray to God, pray to God, pray to God. He'll, he'll, he'll hear your prayers. He'll answer your prayers. And I never heard anything. I never heard anything. I never got comfort and the guidance that I sought after so hard as a kid because I was told, what, you know, being gay is wrong. I just, everything felt wrong in those moments. Can I ask you about your journey into sort of queerdom then? When was your first sort of experience of a queer safe space? And also, obviously, with the fabulous Trinity the Tuck, your first experience of drag? Outside of the, the AOL chats, that's the first experience that I had with a queer space, a queer chat room where I was anonymous. Nobody knew me. I felt safe, like I could ask questions and talk with other people who were having the same feelings that I was. But physically, the first queer space that I fell into, there was this... Um, so when I still lived in ho at home, like when I was 16, I would still... I had a car. I had a, It was a shitty car, but I had a car. And um, I would drive to the big city of Birmingham, Alabama, and that was the big city in Alabama. Like, it was like, you know, it's not a big city. It's it's a big little city. And uh, it's about, it was a 30-minute drive from where I grew up. But to me, 30 minutes was like forever. I was like, oh my gosh, this is forever. But if you know anything about the United States, 30 minutes is nothing. Because you could be driving hours and still be in the same state. I would drive to the big city and I would drive to this... Um, outdoors shopping mall, and there was this coffee shop called Joe Muggs. And it, Joe Muggs is still around, I think. It's kind of like a Starbucks, but it's not as big. Um, but there was this really nice Joe Muggs coffee shop that I got coffee at one time, and I was like, oh my God, there's a bunch of gay people who work here. Oh my God, there's a bunch of young gay people who hang out here. And I'm talking about like teenagers, like my age, gay people. I met several people 
who I still know to this day in that coffee shop. That was the first, I wouldn't say it was queer. I mean, obviously it wasn't, you know, that's not what the intention of the owners of Joe Muggs coffee, but it felt queer. It felt like a queer space and I felt safe there. Now, um, once I got old enough to go to gay bars, I started going out at, at the age of 18. As, as soon as I turned 18, I um, somehow figured, found this night show that was a, a drag show. Saw that with one of my friends. His name was Chris, Chris Glass. And he was like this tiny, I'm talking about like really, really, really tiny, five, four, five, five, uh, black kid. He, who was a professional cheerleader at the time. He was like a, a cheerleader in college or something. Adorable, high energy, super confident, something I wasn't, who also did drag. And I can't remember their drag name. They were like, you need to do drag. You're, you're skinny, you'll be great. So, you know, back then, skinny meant a great drag queen, I guess. But um, I was like, oh, I'll never do drag. Like, that's so gross. I'll never do drag. And they were like, well, on Thursday nights, there's a talent competition that you can win $100 if you win. And you should enter. And I was like, you know, broke 18-year-old. I was like, oh, I'll do it. So I had my friend Chris paint me. And mind you, he was not very good at painting himself, let alone painting me. And I'm, you know, obviously shades and shades and shades and shades lighter than he was. So the makeup techniques were much different. I mean, it just wasn't, it just wasn't good all around. He wasn't good at makeup. I didn't look good at makeup that he was painting. So, but, you know, I did it and I lost. And, but something sparked in me. I was like, cause I was like, I'm, I'm competitive. I want to win. I just want to win. So I did it until I won. It took me three tries and I finally won. And then by the third time that I did it, cause this was three weeks in a row that I did it. By that time I was hooked. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. It grew and grew and grew. It grew from like wearing off the rack blue jeans that we just glued shit to, to like ripping apart stuff and, and gluing it together to make costumes, to like so like learning to sew. And then, you know, I would do these talent competitions. I did them for a whole year. And I started winning so many of them, the bar that I that held this competition told me I couldn't enter them anymore. They're like, you're scaring away contestants. Like, we, we don't even get contestants anymore because they know you're going to win. So they're like, we'll make you a deal. Stop doing the, the competitions and we'll start booking you. And I was like, oh, a real booking. Like, I'm going to be like a real working drag queen. And mind you, I still have my day job. I was a server. So they would start booking me every once in a while on the show. And shout out to Raquel Scott, who is, she was a, a major drag queen in my city, uh, who was the show director there. And she's the first person who get, gave me my shot. I, she's not my drag mother, but she, I would say she's like my drag aunt. Like she was my second drag mother. And she gave me my opportunity there. And then for that next year, she would book me every once in a while until finally they had a cast opening and she hired me full time. And so I was working there two nights a week, the weekend. I was working every weekend. And um, she kind of cultivated me in the business sense of that for a while. Um, so that, that was my first, and it was called The Quest. And it is still open. It's been open since the 70s in Birmingham, Alabama as a queer bar. And it is 24 hours and it's grandfathered in. They don't have that law anymore. Is there a plaque on the wall that says Trinity the Tuck started here? No, because even though that's where I started drag, I don't, when I go back to Birmingham, because I go back a couple of times a year, I don't claim that as my home bar. There's another bar that I was on cast at called Owls on 7th. And another little hole in the wall that is just a little bit more friendly to the community as a whole. I feel like the quest became very toxic. It was it was it was just very toxic. It 
the people that ran it, the management, didn't want to pay their drag queens much. They, you know, they didn't want to invest in the bar. They, they didn't care about like their patrons as much. And then, so I left there with the whole cast quit. We, and we moved over to Al's and they paid us better. And we noticed that it was a cleaner establishment and um, that venue was much nicer to their patrons. And so I was on cast there for years. And so that's, that's what I would consider my home bar. So anytime I go back to Birmingham, I only book there. And I, get, I give them like a major discount. I don't charge them my normal fee. And um, yeah, so that's where I go. But there's not a, there's still there's still not a plaque there either. But um, I'm the only drag queen in from Birmingham to be on Drag Race. Now, there has been some legendary queens from my city to go on to become like major stars in the drag world, like uh, in, especially in the pageantry world, I think the biggest name outside of me would be this queen. She also happens to live in Orlando, Florida. So that's odd. She's originally from Birmingham, where, I, where I'm from. Her name's Tasha Long. And she's won every major national pageant you could think of. Like she, And she's like, you know, she's like in her 50s now. An icon. So let's talk about the pageants, obviously, as well, because, you know, anybody that has seen you on screen or on stage will know that you are so, so polished. I'm assuming even back when you started, you were very, very polished. Do you think that doing the pageants and things like that taught you those skills that always make you go above and beyond to make sure that, you know, every every sequin is on point, every lash looks fabulous? To put that rumour to rest... I was a busted mess when I first started drag. <laughs> and when I first started drag, I named myself Trinity after Trinity from The Matrix because that movie had just came out and I was enamored by this gothic, leather-wearing, badass woman. And I was like, that's what I want my drag to be like. So for the first couple of months, all I wore was jet black hair and pleather. That's that's what my character was. Definitely not polished. Definitely not polished. Back then, there was no YouTube tutorials on makeup. You literally had to learn how to do makeup on your own or, or have somebody show you. And the queens around me were not the makeup artists that you see today. Like, there's just a vast... Anybody can become a drag queen now just going on social media, like learning how to do makeup that way. There was nothing like that back then. Nothing, no resources. If you wanted a costume, you wanted a mix, you wanted a wig, you wanted um, to learn makeup, you did it on your own. There was no, there was no tutorial. To go back to your question, there was no drag race. There was no drag on TV. The only person you saw on TV that was a drag queen was RuPaul, and that was few and far between, and that was like here and there, her VH1 show, or like Tuong Fu, if you didn't live in New York or L.A., the only way you were going to be famous in the drag world, because let me preface this, drag race and the actual world of drag are two vastly different things. Two vastly different things. There's so much more drag that people don't know outside of the show. The show is a TV show. Drag the drag community outside of that, the working girls and, and guys and theys, the, the working drag artists in, in our community that are in clubs, that are in venues, that are, are doing street shows or brunches or whatnot, are doing pageants, uh, doing competitions, other things, those are, that's a different community than drag race. And yes, some of us come from that world, obviously, but two different things. So back then, if you wanted to be famous in that world, you had to do pageants. You had to do something and you had to win. Like you had to become a name. And that's how you got booked outside of your city. You would get bookings at, in different cities or different states because you won this pageant. 
And so that's how I was like, well, that's how I'm going to get bookings. And so I started doing pageants and then my drag started to get more polished because drag or pageants are kind of like a finishing school. Like you, you know, you're judged based off of the details. Unlike, you know, regular drag, drag has no rules. Pageantry has all the rules and you have to fit your drag within the parameters of what, and everything is is accounted for. And if you have anything off, they did up points. And so you really start to pay attention to all the details. And that's what polished my drag. And I did so many pageants, lost way more than I ever won. I won about uh, give or take. I, I can't even think of all of them at this point. Yeah, it was definitely a finishing school that really helped polish my drag for sure. Please tell me you have a cabinet of trophies still to this day. I've only kept a few. I um I have a couple of crowns there. So this this top one up there is my All Stars Four crown. This the red and black one up there is it's that one is my National Renaissance crown. I've won three national pageants. That's one of them. This is my Miss Pulse crown. When I won Pulse Nightclub from Orlando, I won that crown. Uh, so I kept it because it, you know, all of the tragedy that happened, it's still special to me. There was a, a place, you probably even heard of it, called Parliament House, the Miss Parliament House crown. That's quite some bling there as well, I've got to say. Um, is it this period of your life, Trinity, that you found happiness in your own skin? Because you talk about it with such passion. And obviously from everything that went before, which we know wasn't an easy ride, was this the era where literally things kind of came together for you sexually, for your sexuality, for, for your, inner, your inner spirit? Yes, I think the, from the time that I turned 18, I had this major burst of realization not not knowing what how i felt fully on the inside uh, and what path i wanted to go on to immediately realizing experiencing just a little bit of the gay world the queer world in birmingham that i immediately knew this was this is it this is the direction i needed to go in this is going to be this is going to help me find my people this is going to help me find what i'm passionate about and it did it helped me find my confidence quickly like you know once i started winning those talent competitions i was like oh my gosh i am good at something i am good at something i didn't think i was good at anything i didn't i didn't i didn't know what i was good at i worked so hard at becoming better at it. That's why I'm really good at drag. And, you know, that's not me being pompous or anything, but I just, that I know that I'm good at drag. I worked really hard cultivating my craft and that's because I had to, because I felt like this was it. This was, this was my talent. This was what I was good at. That confidence that you have as Trinity and that confidence that you found in yourself, was that reflected, you know, away from the stage as well? I mean, if you were dating at that point or meeting people for romance, whatever, um, is it is it hard dating as somebody that is seen as a drag queen? And then when you're away from the stage, you're, you're almost like a different person. Was the confidence there when you were away from the stage too? That was still something I was working on. My confidence outside of drag, it was getting better. But I was still, I still felt like I was very awkward looking. I had a big nose. I had ears that stuck out. I was super, super skinny and could not gain weight, let alone muscle. I had no, I had no ass. Like, like I was literally like skin and bones and a nose and I, and I, and oily skin. And so, and I, I, so I felt very uncomfortable around guys to even try to like, I would never go up to someone and hit on them. Like if, if any interaction would have happened, it would have been because someone hit on me. And so it wasn't until, you know, I got in my twenties and fi I finally got like work done. I went and got filler in my cheeks and my lips. I got, you know, I got filler in my ass and my hips and that really boosted my confidence because I, I felt, I didn't feel as skinny. I didn't feel as ugly. I didn't feel, I felt like 
okay, I look better. And so from the time of 18 to early 20s, I was still building my confidence. I The biggest thing with confidence, I feel like, learned more about myself and accepting my flaws and being super confident in my early 30s on. My 30s have been my, I think my 20s were still me figuring shit out. I, 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 and I think that, you know, there's something to be said about having experience, you know, as you get older, you just, you gain confidence in yourself. You get, you, you have this knowledge, you have experienced the world, you've done stuff, you, you know, you know yourself inside and out. And if there's a flaw, you either have accepted it or you've changed it or, you know, it is what it is. And, And at that point in your life, you, you just know, you know, you know what, what the good things are about yourself, the bad things, the things you need to work on, the things that appeal to people. But yes, it, it, it's still in the early stages, I was still not confident out of drag. Did Drag Race give you major confidence as well? Because all of a sudden, you know, little Ryan from Birmingham, Alabama, is there on a worldwide stage as Trinity, as this goddess of, you know, beauty and drag. So is, is that where, did confidence come from that? I'm assuming it did. At that point, when I got on Drag Race, I was 31 at my height of confidence. I, you Like, if I would have never got on Drag Race, I, I still would feel the same way I feel about myself, about my career, as I do now. Drag Race, I am super thankful for. But Drag Race is still not even one of my biggest accomplishments. Winning National Entertainer of the Year, the, the that one pageant that I won, that is my biggest accomplishment because I did that pageant over a 10-year span. That was my finishing school. That literally was where I learned how to do drag, through this pageant. And this pageant, I met some incredible people that are still super influential in my life, that are still in my life uh, today through this pageant. That is my number one accomplishment, is that pageant. I worked so hard at it. I I worked for so many years doing it. And now um, I own I own a portion of the pageant. I'm I'm one of the one of three owners in, in this this system. No other former has ever been able to 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 do that. And, and this past year, they finally brought me on as one of the the owners. But that is my 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 confidence. That that was what really made me feel what I feel now. Drag Race definitely helped me prove to other people what I already knew. Can I ask you about something that's happened more recently? In 2022, uh, on the Transgender Day of Visibility, uh, you came out as non-binary and transgender. It was such a beautiful and simple announcement you made to the world. What was going through your mind at that point? Why what, Why did you decide to announce that? What, was, it, was it a change for you, or was it something that had always been there and you just thought, no, now is the perfect moment to say this? I have always identified as... And in between. So before the non-binary movement became really popular the last couple of years, I know that that's probably been around. I'm sure it's been, you know, that terminology has been around, but I didn't know about it. Uh, I know that most people I knew didn't know what non-binary was, but I called myself an in-between, which basically means non-binary. I also... Uh, have felt for a long time that I was trans. And even in my early years of drag, like I would say 20-ish, 20 to 22, somewhere around there, I dabbled in hormones. Like I went on hormones for a couple of months and I got them from one of my friends who she was transitioning and she had transitioned to a different hormone therapy and she still had some of her hormone shots. Well, you know... (laughs) First of all, kids, don't ever do that. Like, obviously, those were meant for her body, like her chemicals, the whatever she, you know, what she was going through, her, 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 whatever that is. They were not prescribed to me. I should not have taken them. But I did. At that time, I didn't like the way it made my body feel. I didn't like the way that it made me, my head feel. And so I got off of them. As the years went on, you know, I got my lower body done. Literally, I have had more body work done than 
some trans women. The only thing that's missing is, you know, laser hair and some breasts if you if you want to be physical about a transition. As I've gotten older, I feel like I've been so scared for many years to even try to go in that direction because family, society, society mainly, because the world is crazy. And to be trans in this world right now, you, you, and live, to outwardly live how you want to live physically as trans is super brave because it is not easy. I, you know, I see my friends around me, how, how they're treated or how people stare. And, you know, you see politically what's going on. I don't want to be Caitlyn Jenner. No shade to her. I don't like her, but no shade to her. If she she transitioned, that's great for her. And that's great for other people that might want to transition later on in life. There's no rules to that. You do you. Personally, to be aging, not, and I haven't been on hormones for enough time early on to help soften me before I've become, you know, fully grown in quote unquote, what a, a male body. So now I think it would just be much harder to transition and me feel comfortable and confident and live my life every day as a woman. So I say I am trans non-binary. I feel trans on the inside. I don't think physically transitioning is going to be for me. I just don't, I don't think, I think, I, I think for me to feel comfortable, that ship has sailed. I, and that doesn't take away my feelings. I still feel how I feel. Do you feel then that at the moment your identity journey and your surgery enhancement journey is is at a stop for the moment? Physically, yes, but I don't I don't think when you are exploring your sexuality, your gender identity, I don't think that ever fully stops. I think you're 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 constant because your body changes, your body changes, your mind changes um, as you get older. And so I think that those are all things that are possible possibilities for the future. I don't know. You know, who knows? In a year, I might have big old boobies. I don't know what I don't know what my journey will be with that physically. I do know that I want to have some of my filler taken out of my my cheeks and like a face, like a slight facelift because of the weight. You know, I, I could talk to you all day, but let's have a little bit of fun right now. It's like you can have your perfect dinner party with the perfect dinner date guests for you. They could be LGBTQ or otherwise. They can be dead or alive. Make them famous so we know who they are, please. Who would you pick? Five perfect guests alongside yourself. Who would they be and why? Well, I'm obsessed with Amanda Lepore. So I, I would say for sure, Amanda. I've met her a couple of times she's such a sweetheart. I've never had too much of an intimate conversation with her because it's always been in a nightclub or something. Um, so I would love that opportunity to have a a more intimate conversation with her. I would love the same thing with RuPaul. Your experience with, with RuPaul on the show, when she's judging you, she, I feel like she's kind of distant unless the cameras are rolling. Because she kind of has to be. She's a judge. She's got to be non-biased. When the cameras are not on, she's got to be away from y'all. She can't be kikiing with her contestants because it's going to come off as favoritism. At least that's what I think when I, the reason. Because my reasoning of thinking of that is when I filmed AJ and the Queen with her scripted show, I had to run lines with her because I was, I was her pageant rival in one of the episodes. She was so gentle and so kind and completely different than the RuPaul you see judging you. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, this makes total sense. She has to separate herself from her contestants because she's a judge. And that's what any judge in pageantry does. They do that. So RuPaul, for sure, because I would love to have more conversations because I know that she has so much more knowledge and stories, fun stories. I would love fun stories. Somebody else, I would love to have Lady Bunny there because I know that RuPaul and all of these people that I've named all of a sudden are connected. They all have been in the same uh, scene at the same time. So I know that Lady Bunny, RuPaul, Amanda Lepore all have some incredible stories about each other. I would just love to hear that. Someone else, you said dead or alive. I would love to 
have a conversation with Marsha P. Johnson. I would love to know how it was like to live in that time period, what she was going through in that moment when when all of that went down with Stonewall, um, her advocacy work being a trans woman in in that time period. I'm sure her story is very unique and 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 to hear it from her would be interesting. I would I would love that opportunity. And then another person I would love to have had an opportunity to get to know Leslie Jordan. I actually had a couple of encounters with Leslie Jordan before I did him for Snatch Game in Los Angeles. Um, I, I saw him at a restaurant and, and went up and said hi. I didn't ask for a picture, and I regret that to this day. But I didn't want to be that person because they were you know, having their, their time. Um, and that was shortly before he passed. And then after Snatch Game, he reached out to me through Instagram with a, a sweet message. We come from the same world at two different time periods. He's also from the South, from a small town. Um, in Tennessee, so very, very close. Uh, so our upbringing is probably very similar. And I would love to have had more of a conversation with somebody from his time period growing up. They're positive people within my psyche of like, uh, that have influenced me in a positive way. I, I don't know, like, I also thought about like, what if I would have invited somebody like Caitlin or Trump or or Ron DeSantis or somebody that's like the opposite of what I believe. I just feel like if I was to be able to have that moment to pick five people, I would rather it be positive. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think the, the first dinner party would be definitely, I think, much more f- fascinating and iconic. But yes, sitting down with the likes of Trump or, or whoever would be, um, would be an interesting dinner party, most definitely, Trinity. Yeah, I, I feel like, and I would want, Full honesty, like, I, and that—that that I don't think I would ever get. But like, if you could have a potion and you give somebody a potion and they give you full honesty of answers that you would ask, I would love that. I would love to know how he truly feels because I feel like same thing with Caitlyn. Politicians, I don't think, are probably as homophobic as as they are as they come across. I think a lot of it has to do with them pandering to their base. It's awful. It's awful. But I think they do it a lot for votes, power and money. Again, I could not agree more. Can I talk about your best experience in an LGBTQ plus safe space? Which club experience is sort of or bar experience for you is the one you think, yeah, that was a beautiful moment. One of my very best friends, my drag daughter, her name is Chantel Sparkles. She is incredible. She is much more talented and multifaceted, more well-rounded in drag than I am even. Like she's just, she's very dynamic. I think we both have different strengths and and we don't, neither one of us feel threatened by each other because we have different strengths. So I think that's what makes two powerful beings be cohabitable because they, they complement each other rather than, you know, fighting. She won Entertainer of the Year 20... She won last year. Um, So watching her win, I I don't think... I don't know that I've been more proud for someone as I was for her because she worked really hard. And I love when someone puts in so much effort into something and that effort pays off. That That is my number one turn on and not even like not even sexually just turn on in life uh that makes me have a good feeling is when someone works really hard at something and it pays off i love that that one of your most beautiful and proud moments is considering somebody else's beautiful moment and also considering how it was for our community i I think that's truly beautiful um a couple of quick fire questions to finish the podcast today have you done a gay holiday? If so, what was the best one you've ever done? And when you're on that gay holiday and you're out dancing, what's the song that is guaranteed to get you onto the dance floor? I have done a couple of gay holidays. When I was traveling with Erasure, we we were booked on a few of those Atlantis cruise ships. 
And so um, this is before Drag Race. So I was a drag queen on stage and then out of drag um, off stage. So nobody really put two and two together because I wasn't famous then. And so I could go out with my friends on the ship and dance and no one would know. Any iconic 80s and 90s dance song is my go-to. Uh, Queer as Folk, the original season, uh, the, the original U.S. season, because I know that U.K. had their own. That, the 90s dance music, it just has a vibe to it. It, it has a feel-good to it. Uh, it. It also has nostalgia for me, because watching Queer, uh, Queer as Folk, when I was sneaking and watching it when I was young, when it was on, those songs were iconic to to that development of queerness. And so definitely anything, you know, dancey from the 80s and 90s. Good choice. Can I say, Trinity the Tuck, it has been an absolute pleasure and an honour to speak to you today. And thank you for proving that literally your life is indeed a gay old time. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening in and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Trinity as much as I did. My heartfelt thanks to her for sharing her amazing story. If you'd like to experience more Rainbow Joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Spotify, Apple or wherever you're listening right now, maybe on the KDO app. And do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in. If you'd like more information about the podcast online, then head to the Instagram account at a gay old time podcast. And you can also find out more at all the w's.nigelmay.net. Thanks a million to Juliet at Pineapple Audio Production for making everything so sparkly and gorgeous. I'll be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with another inspirational individual. Until then, from me, Nigel May, sending all the love and hoping that whatever you're up to, if it applies to you, that you're having a gay old time. Enjoy. 